Okay, Jen, I think I'm going to get started just because it's 12 on the dot and we have a, a couple of announcements. So welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar series called The Colloquium um, that is moderated by myself and Jen Baltzagar on the top of your screen there. We're very excited about this week's presenter. Uh, but before we talk about Kira O'Donnell, I'm just going to give a few announcements. I uh, want to remind everybody that next week uh, we will have Brian Donovan, who is a senior research scientist at the BC BS Science Learning. He's going to be talking about high school genetics. Um, and it will be in person, but it will not be at the 1911 building. It will be at Poe. So we will send out a reminder that next week's colloquium is in person, but at the Poe building, our usual 202. Um, also, this Friday, our Ag Biofuse fellow, Greg. Ferraro will be presenting uh, the Brown Bag series from 12 to 1 for the Center for Environmental and Resource Economic Policy. And that is located at the Nelson Hall fourth floor at the Agriculture and Resource Economics Department. And he's going to be talking about inundation and agricultural land use on North Carolina's coast. So please uh, join him this Friday from 12 to 1 at SEMREP's uh, Brown Bag series. And also you might've noticed in the slide deck, we have the dolphin tank this Saturday, uh, April 15th from nine to four o'clock. And that's at the BTEC Education Center at 850 Oval Road. We'll send out some more announcements on our weekly newsletter, um, but that we are gonna be seeing some team-based innovation competition, talking about sustainability, social responsibility and responsible innovation. And I know that uh, Ag Biofuse uh, fellows will be there as well. So uh, please join us this Saturday for the Dolphin Tank, nine to four. Um, and we will continue to ask this question, but please send Jen and I any um, speakers that you would like to see next fall. Uh, we are starting to send out invites for the fall semester. And so if you have anybody that you would like to have come in person or virtual, please let us know and, and send us some recommendations. So I think those are all the announcements that I have, and I'm going to go ahead and let Rebecca Brown, who is our Ag Biofuse Fellow from Food Sciences, introduce our speaker. Thank you, Don. Uh, we are pleased to welcome Dr. Kira O'Donnell from, uh, from Duke University. Dr. O'Donnell is a postdoctoral associate of biology at the Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, whose interdisciplinary work spans the subjects of environmental hazards, adaptive capacity, and social ecological systems. She has impactfully written on hurricane damage and people's perceptions of coastal environmental changes. She leads an extensive multidisciplinary group involving top researchers from across the US investigating sea life, sea level rise and sea saltwater intrusion or AKA Swizzler on coastal communities. I'm sure Dr. O'Donnell would be more than happy to talk about Swizzler at working group as there is a, certainly a role for genetics and biology in coastal changes. Without further ado, I give the floor to Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm gonna take just a moment to start sharing my screen and the presentation. And I love that you did this with the Research Coordination Network right off the bat, even though I will be talking about that at the end of the presentation. So just keep that on your mind as a precursor for at the end. But today I'm gonna talk about some of my work that's actually from my PhD work uh, at Northeastern, where I looked at coastal shorelines and looked at them with a social ecological systems lens to try and understand how people are interacting with their shorelines 
and the decisions that they're making. So I will be talking through an introduction today, just making sure we're all on the same page. Hopefully it won't be boring too many people, but I'll introduce what a social ecological system is. I will then talk about what natural and nature-based features are, and then why hazards. I'll then get through the actual work that I've done looking at perceptions on natural and nature-based features in the face of hazards, and then talking through the conclusions, and this is where I will be talking about the Swizzler Research Coordination Network. So to start, uh, social ecological systems are a way to break down the complex interactions happening between people and their surrounding environment. And I always love using this picture to talk through social ecological systems because I think it really shows that at the core, social ecological systems describe how the social subsystems of this waterfront resident and how their ecological surroundings interact and alter each other. So historically, it was believed that the social system only negatively impacted the environment through human degradation and management decisions. But since the environmentalist movement, there has been a lot of studies on the positives that ecological systems provide through ecosystem services. And now we have a better understanding of both the positives and negatives that are attributed to both of these arrows. And this creates the cyclical nature of social ecological systems and the basis for more complex frameworks. And so researchers have suggested that one way to study these complex systems is to look at how the parts and interactions actually respond to hazards. And this framework was first introduced by Collins uh, in 2011, and it offers us the opportunity to better understand why some systems are more resilient in nature. And this is important because with climate change, the drive to create more resilient coastal systems is higher than ever. And governance systems such as NOAA, um, which is a subsystem of the social side of SES frameworks, have been tasked with reducing the risk of many different hazards. This is an example of one of their preparedness and risk reduction plans for coastal systems in general. And the idea to protect these uh, kind of hotspots of vulnerability and economic uh, boom along the water is not a new idea. And historically, the solution to protecting these areas was to armor our coastlines with hardened infrastructure, and it allows room for recreation and boating, but it actually degrades the natural environment and it can actually cause more intense damages when overtopping occurs, such as this picture of the same Boston Harbor during a king tide. So this was not a storm, it was just a higher than higher normal average tide. On the other hand, we have natural or green systems. Uh, the picture again, this was in the Florida panhandle of a waterfront homeowner with their marsh. And this marsh offers alternatives to armoring, and these natural solutions are gaining traction in coastal resilience studies and with coastal practitioners. So natural features like marshes and mangroves have shown to protect coastal residents from hazards through their wave attenuating properties and their increased flood storage capacity. Um, I always like to cite this paper by Narayan, that highlights the amount that marshes have saved and economic damages from Hurricane Sandy, and it highlights the amount that they could save along the northeast coast in annual flood losses. This is, provides a really good economic advantage of natural-based uh, features, but these vegetated systems provide more than just economic advantages. 
They also are connected to a person's environment and they can provide aesthetic value, cultural values, and potentially a better sense of place. People are connected to their environment, and I quote a lot of housing studies that have shown people continuously choose to live in areas with blue and green spaces, like along a beach or next to a forest, and people have this desire for coastal areas. They keep talking about how they want to move to the coast. For my studies in Florida, a lot of people say they love living so close to the ocean. And this desire creates high housing values along these really risky areas and creates this interesting dynamic between people and their risky areas that they're living. So as a solution to these kind of exposures that people are being faced with, a lot of people are turning to natural and nature-based features because of the positive benefits that they provide to the people and to the ecosystems. And so natural features are this side. They are the natural environment and those green solutions um, that I've been showing in the previous slides. And then nature-based features are these coastal solutions located in between the natural and the hardened solutions along this gradient. And they use the positive benefits that the natural features uh, have in their designs, but they can also kind of use some of the gray and harder techniques to protect the natural vegetation from uh, wave dynamics that are too intense for vegetation alone. So when I say NNBF, I am talking about the natural nature-based features within this range of shoreline options. Um, I also want to take a moment here to talk about the breakdown of shorelines I will be walking through in the future. And I will always call them the categories of hardened, which are these harder techniques, uh, hybrid, which are these in-between, and then vegetated, which is vegetation only. And so keep in mind that both vegetated and hybrid options are NNBF, or natural and nature-based features. So to get into my work a little bit, um, the work I'm presenting today, I will be focusing on waterfront residents because they have direct access to coastal ecosystems and their shoreline management decisions play a really big role in how the ecological coastal communities are shaped. Uh, through the work I have done and previous studies, it's been found that the privately owned shorelines are actually more likely to be hardened. On the lower Florida Keys specifically, about 78% of privately owned parcels are along hardened structures, and only 15% are along mangroves. If more people are moving to the coasts because of these really desirable areas and deciding to live in these risky areas, they need shoreline options available to them that will not degrade the natural environment and can provide protection from our changing climate, from sea level rise and intensifying coastal storms. I do wanna note that these stark differences are not always true. And for instance, Annapolis actually has systems in place for residents to first check if a vegetated system of vegetated shoreline would work, then they go down to a hybrid option and then a hardened option as a final solution. And Annapolis has recommended contractors that they talk about throughout this process that will provide homeowners with natural and nature-based feature shoreline options. So because waterfront homeowners make so many decisions about their shorelines, previous studies have worked at ranking the attributes when uh, homeowners are deciding what type of shoreline they want. And so the top three have consistently been effectiveness, cost, and durability. 
And those are the three that I will be presenting on today. And I will talk through the cost, effectiveness, and durability of natural and nature-based features within hurricanes. So the two studies I'll be talking about are located in the lower Florida Keys, circled here, and the Florida Panhandle, circled here. And so both of these places are great areas to study social ecological systems because they have large areas of vegetated systems and hotspots of populations and tourism, such as Key West in the lower Florida Keys and Panama City in the Panhandle. Um, they have, uh, Key West specifically has a lot of mangrove islands and uh, mangrove systems that protect people a lot. And then Panama City is uh, one of the areas that's well known for their large dune systems as well. Uh, in addition to these being great places to study social ecological systems, there are also a lot of waterfront homeowners in this area, thus making decisions about the ecosystems that are supporting the rest of the community. Uh, specifically, about 75% of people in the Florida Keys are waterfront, and about 72% of people in the three-county region of the Panhandle that I studied are located along the coast. So as I've been talking about, in order to study the interactions between people and their surrounding environment, I use hazards. Specifically, I use the Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Michael. And these two pictures are uh, photographs from homeowners that I received post-hurricane. And I think they kind of showcase the resiliency of people in the area. Even though these homes are damaged, people were still responding to surveys and talking to me and telling me about the disasters that occurred. So to introduce the storms just quickly, uh, we have Hurricane Irma that was primarily a flooding storm. It caused a lot of flooding damages and it made landfall in the lower Florida Keys as a category four storm in September, 2017. Then the other storm was Hurricane Michael. This was a huge category five storm. And with that, it was primarily a wind driven storm. So a lot of wind damage and it made landfall as a category five in the Florida Panhandle in October, 2018. Um, another quick thing to note, something that I actually didn't know before studying these, is hurricanes often come with tornadoes, many tornadoes that uh, rip through a lot of the homes and shoreline types that are along these areas. So a lot of people talked about how her, uh, tornadoes actually impacted their home and shoreline. Okay, so in order to understand the actions and perceptions of residents, we sent a survey to households in the lower Florida Keys about one year after Hurricane Irma. And this graphic on the left is showing the, Florida, the lower Florida Keys that I surveyed, the location of the residents that responded, and the track of Hurricane Irma. Then I also, for Hurricane Michael, sent a survey to the three-county region of Bay, Gulf, and Franklin about one year after the storm as well. And again, the track of Hurricane Michael is shown and the location of all of the respondents from the survey. Um, I won't go too much into survey methods because I just want to jump straight into my results. So I will talk through, as I said before, the effectiveness, the durability, and the cost that shorelines um, the cost of shorelines given the two storms of Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Michael. Okay, so first to test the effectiveness of natural nature-based features, I looked at how damaged the home was based on the type of shoreline that was present. So first, Hurricane Irma. 
Uh, now this bar chart is displaying the percent of residents who answered ruined in dark red. So their home they said was ruined down to no damage and off white. And so this color combination will be used to represent damage dates for the rest of the presentation. Uh, for Hurricane Irma, most residents reported their home as moderately or lightly damaged. And when we plotted the percent of damaged states by shoreline type, so you can see inland, hardened, hybrid, and then mangrove, we found that there was no significant difference in the distribution of home damage across shoreline types. Then for Hurricane Michael, we simu similarly found that there was no significant difference between hardened, hybrid, and vegetated. Uh, beach and tidal flat reported the least damage of waterfront homes, and I think that that is due to the fact I didn't account for the large dune systems that were in this area. So people responded, beach, tidal flat, not too much damage because they were behind dunes. Uh, we then asked people, uh, how effective do you think these shoreline types are so that we could compare uh, for how well they performed? So for Hurricane Irma, uh, mangroves were reported as the most effective shoreline type for protecting against storms. And this bar chart is displaying the percent of residents who answered extremely effective in dark green down to not effective at all in light green. So on the right for mangrove, you can see the big uh, percentage of people who reported mangroves as extremely effective. For Hurricane Michael, we similarly found that residents thought that the vegetated systems of uh, marshes were extremely effective to very effective at shoreline protection, although the panhandle did not have a stark difference uh, between the bulkhead and marshes, but they did think riprap was actually a shoreline that would be the most effective for storms. Now onto durability. Uh, we asked residents how damaged their shoreline was. And for Hurricane Irma, hardened shorelines fared better during the storm. And for Hurricane Michael, there was no significant difference across the different shoreline types, although they did sustain more damages in total. Uh, in addition to the perceptions, we had reported expenses of shoreline repair per meter of shoreline for Hurricane Irma. So this is specifically for Hurricane Irma in the Florida Keys. We did ask this question in Hurricane Michael, but not enough people answered to look at this result similarly. So first, hardened shorelines on average had a higher cost to maintain per year and had a higher cost to repair or replace their shoreline given the damages that they received. Whereas hybrid and mangroves, although more damaged, cost less per meter of shoreline to repair, they also cost less to maintain per year, which has also been found in previous studies as well, that vegetated systems typically cost less to maintain. And so a direct explanation of this, I think, uh, is was found by asking residents what actions they took. So although these were not direct damage states, I still colored them similarly to the damage questions covered so far. And then I have pie charts to show the proportion of responses for each shoreline action taken for each category of shoreline, hardened, hybrid, and mangrove. Although hardened shorelines had the most responding no action taken because the shoreline was not impacted, when damage did occur, minor or major repairs were needed. Whereas mangroves, although, although they were mostly reported as lightly damaged, most mangrove homeowners reported that they did not need to take repair or recovery actions, even though their shoreline was impacted. So to summarize, 
People are aware of the protection that vegetated systems provide in both the Florida Keys and the Florida Panhandle, um, more so in the Florida Keys. And vegetated shorelines provided similar levels of protection to properties during the two major hurricanes I looked at, since we found no significant difference between the housing damage by shoreline type. And then finally, vegetated shorelines did cost less to repair and replace, even though they were slightly more damaged, um, but they required less recovery actions. So this points to the idea that vegetated systems are resilient and can bounce back after a hurricane. And I've worked with people um, after Hurricane Michael to show how resilient these marsh systems were at recovering themselves. So going back to the attributes uh, that waterfront homeowners use when deciding their shoreline type, I think natural and nature-based features are good shoreline options because they are effective, they cost less, and even though not outrightly durable, they have the ability to uh, repair themselves and have long-term durability. But people are still armoring the coastline. Even with these benefits that directly align with preferred attributes of shorelines, coastal homeowners are not choosing natural and nature-based features. There is a disconnect somewhere here. And at the United States scale, about 14% of the coastline has been armored. This was found in a study back in 2014, so I'm not sure about how armored the coastline is now. But studies have shown that once a homeowner armors their shoreline, that the rest of the bay or the inlet is actually more likely to armor theirs as well, due both to the potential for increased erosion and societal pressures of neighbors. So there's the potential that the decisions that waterfront homeowners are making are impacting the whole entire coastal ecosystem. And with changing climate, uh, storm impacts becoming worse and more intense flooding occurring, uh, it's a bigger issue that we need to make sure our coastal systems are resilient to these changes that we're seeing with climate. Along with this inundation that we're seeing, uh, salt water is brought into landscapes that are not able to cope with these high levels of salinity. So we are losing the natural protection that wetlands provide through human modification of people changing into hardened shorelines and through climate change. A specific example is from this white and all paper that salt water is um, causing a lot of forest loss. And these coastal forested wetlands that typically provide our flood and hurricane protection are being lost due to swizzler, saltwater intrusion and sea level rise. And I do wanna point out that saltwater intrusion and sea level rise isn't only impacting coastal cities. With people moving away from high exposure areas because of the risk, they're ending up uh, saying the risk is higher than they want to be out there. These population projections show that every single state in the United States is influenced by sea level rise in some way, meaning that a waterfront homeowner's decision about their shoreline can have a large and lasting effect for the rest of the United States population. So what do we do about all of this? Can natural and nature-based features save us? I don't think that they can alone, but how do we decide what to do moving forward? Do we abandon the kind of farmland that is not having as much crop production because of the salt water? Do we transform these uh, forested wetlands into low-lying marsh? Do we adapt? Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't have the answer to this problem, but a pathway forward is to better understand how social ecological systems are impacted by the changing climate so that we can create resilient solutions moving forward.
So to try and accomplish this, uh, we have a research coordination network here at Duke, well, focused here at Duke, that is looking at trying to understand saltwater intrusion and sea level rise all along the North American coastal plain. So if you're interested in talking about saltwater or sea level rise, coastal systems or solutions, you can feel free to reach out and join our conversations, all focused on under, better understanding the impacts of saltwater intrusion and sea level rise. So with that, I want to thank you all for coming to hear me talk today to kind of plug my Swizzler Research Coordination Network, and I am excited to uh, have further discussions about this work. So I can take any questions, um, and going forward, you can be, feel free to email me with anything that's not covered today. Thank you so much, Kara. That was interesting. Okay, I'm going to... Um give people just a second to gather their thoughts and remind everyone that if you would like to ask your question directly to Kara, use the raise your hand function and I'll call on you. And if you would prefer for me to read your question for you, put it in the chat and we um, will have a good discussion. Yeah. Okay, I, Asa, I see that you have your hand raised, please. Go ahead. Hello, uh, thanks for the great talk. Um, I went to Northeastern for my undergrad, so it's nice to see a fellow alum. Um, I'm curious about how the scale relates. So I'm imagining if, if you just bought a house on the coastline and all your neighbors have these armored installments, whether or not a vegetative, more natural option is going to offer as much protection as if you were, you know, already in an area with a contiguous mangrove. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is a great question. And one I kind of glossed over, but that's, there's a study by my uh, old PhD advisor, Stephen Cyphers, that looked at the amount that people decided on what they wanted what they wanted their shoreline to be. And the highest factor of their personal shoreline decision was actually what their neighbor's shoreline was. And so he kind of tried breaking that down a little bit that it was definitely, you can only decide to have a, a vegetated shoreline in a system that works for a vegetated shoreline. So of course, if someone has a, a bulkhead next to you, you're more likely to have a dredged channel or something in front of you that requires you to have a bulkhead as well. But he did find that in areas um, where people were choosing to put in bulkheads because of erosion in their area, so they used to have a vegetated shoreline, and then instead of making efforts to try and um, increase the resiliency of a vegetated shoreline, they were just putting a bulkhead instead. People down the lines so of neighbors were putting in bulkheads as well because of he was saying with talking to people because of the social pressure of, oh, my neighbor has this and it looks so nice, like my vegetated system, like it's kind of failing here. So then they would just opt for the bulkhead instead of choosing the vegetated system. So I think the scale is a really important point there. And for parcel level decisions, you need to think about it as like ecosystem wide, which is why there is work being done with the Nature Conservancy that I put a little mark there of doing these 
who could have these vegetated systems and then who among their neighbors could potentially as well and trying to group people together into almost having a co-owned vegetated shoreline instead of just this is my shoreline, I have a bulkhead. So there's a lot of work trying to connect people so that they have options for shorelines moving forward. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay. Hey, I have a question. Um, I'm more familiar with barrier islands and those seem to be managed more by, you know, a municipality or some sort of government. And in the past, they had grinds and jetties. And obviously, lots of research has gone into erosion and what dredging does. And, and it appears that some, there's a movement, you know, to remove these structures. Is there, a, and I'm not nearly as familiar with them, main coastline that you've studied. Um, but is there an effort to have people remove these hardened structures? And um, is there as much information about the main shoreline and erosion and the ecological effects um, as there is for barrier islands? Yeah, so I think that this, actually that question kind of comes back to scale as well. And it really depends on where you live. So I mentioned Annapolis has a lot of options and a lot of good handholding of kind of helping people through that decision of um, what you can do, what should you do, like what is even possible. And so it comes kind of down to the governance systems to provide people with options and with these contractors that can do that work. Um, I wanted to say that right off the top uh, because the actual answer to your question, I'm not sure. I just know of the systems that I kind of study. And I do know that Annapolis is a good one that, as I said in the example, um, does have these studies and systems in place of knowing when and where we can do natural and nature-based features. Um, another one is actually Alabama. Because there's not a lot of regulation on what you need for a shoreline, there are people who actually just throw down like tires as a barrier so that their marsh can uh, withstand some of the waves that are coming in. So because of that, there's more options for what to do with a hybrid solution. Whereas places like Boston, the actual management of like Boston, Massachusetts, they only think of natural features. They don't think of these hybrid approaches. So there's a lot more governance you have to work through to get these systems in place. So to answer your question, it's variable. <laughs> Sounds like science. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, Amanda, I see that your hand is raised. Yeah. Hi, thanks so much for your talk. I thought it was super interesting. My question is about what the equation looks like for deciding to keep farmland farmland or mm -hmm. to convert it into something else and what some of those alternative options look like and maybe how they're received by the community. Thanks. Yeah, so that is a great question. And I feel like my answer to your question is join our Swizzler RCN to find out more because I just started this postdoc. Um, I'm coming up on a year now, so I'm still trying to understand um, farmland and what people are doing. And I think at least for North Carolina, 
and so don't quote me on this, this is just my quick understanding of, of quickly learning, is that the options people are finding are either buying out some of the coastal areas of a farm and making converting that into marsh so that there's a buffer, um, or finding salt tolerant crops so that with like saltwater intrusion, um, they can still grow in the saltier soils. But I'm not sure how people are responding to these options. And I think that's a big question I have because I'm always curious about how people are interacting with their ecosystem to decide what to do. So I think that is something moving forward, maybe next year I'll have a better answer for you. <laughs> cool, thank you so much. Yeah. Nolan. Yeah, I'll throw one out there. Um, I thought, uh, so I thought the idea, um, I mean, sort of like your advocacy for um, natural hybrid, you know, innovations was, was interesting because it was like, yeah, they take on a little bit more damage, um, but they also kind of spring back or have the capacity to spring back a little faster. So I'm wondering like, um, if, if though if that perception if that idea right that's the idea of kind of like resilience in a different way that's not like total <laughs> defense but like like that we can take on some damage but hop, like regain strength um, quicker like I'm wondering if that idea or you know to what extent that exists in um, like home homeowners minds or um, or even like how that kind of thinking might be different from where we were maybe 10 or you know decades back like is is that the kind of direction we're headed with resilience which 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 means like not like an unbreakable fortress but more like uh something that can kind of shift and and adapt quicker yeah so with my perceptions of kind of the state of the union of research is that it's there's research that's becoming more interdisciplinary. And with that, we're actually seeing how people who used to talk about the resilience of ecosystems is being applied to how societies are or how buildings are. So there's kind of this talk between the two. So I do think that the idea moving forward is creating resiliency as more of a bounce instead of just a straight, like hardened structure overtopping occurs, that's it, it's done. Or like it only goes up to a certain extent. But when we have these vegetated systems, and I think the more communication we have, the more we're seeing that people understand that this mangrove might be impacted with this storm, but they know because of their history living there that it will come back. Um, I remember after uh, Hurricane Irma, I went out on um, with some residents in the area and they gave me a tour of like, oh, that mangrove used to be over here, but like that mangrove, I see sprouts coming back. And they like started to introduce me to the areas that they know is coming back and growing. So people are aware of this, at least in the Florida Keys. And there's been uh, work on that topic of people who are more intertwined with their ecosystem tend to understand it more which kind of makes sense. So I, I think that moving forward, 
that is kind of the trajectory we're seeing, that people are understanding that there's this, you don't need to be hard and rigid to have, to be responsive to the damages we're seeing. And then the manager, the managers and planners with communication are also seeing that as well, that you don't need to just have these hard shorelines, you can have kind of an in-between. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's an idea of, there's also an idea of just sustainability in there so that like, it's not, um, you know, I mean, it happens with like lots of infrastructures where you can have something that's like sort of big and majestic and powerful for a long time, but it's, then when it falls, it like really falls. Um, mm -hmm. So, which is kind of the opposite of sustainability. Um, so yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah. And I think it also comes back to people who are willing to make those changes. And I think a lot of people are being innovative and thinking of new ways to kind of combine the two, which is super helpful, where you can still have this like structure, but there's the natural side interdispersed throughout. And so a lot of like living with green space, living with water, a lot of like those kind of areas, I think are a good example of this hybrid approach that we can potentially use the both. I am not an engineer, so I don't know those approaches as well, but I know the people's perceptions of them are pretty good. Okay. Um, David Kraken, would you like to um, unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. And perfect segue about combining the two. I was going to ask you, last November, the journal Science had an article about building a $31 billion wall around Houston to protect mm -hmm. Houston and the areas from storm surge, from future hurricanes, things like that. Is that something where if you go for something that big, it can only be hard? You can't have green protection in with it? So I am not sure. Um, I think my response to that is the actual wall, you can have ways to build walls that are not as detrimental to the environment. And then maybe on the inside, I know of a study after uh, Hurricane Harvey with Houston that people showed if we had marshes in um, the majority of the area, so just protected green space around it, it would have reduced, I forget the amount, but it was it was considerable amount of flooding that it would have reduced. So maybe not the vegetation like right on the wall or something, but if you have that wall, you can have the vegetation behind it to help facilitate more like flood storage capacity. Um, I will say that I am not a big proponent. I am not a big, um, supporter of just building a wall, mostly because I come from Massachusetts where they had this huge plan of building a wall all around the harbor. And then there are a lot of studies that came out that the um, communities just on the edges of the wall were underwater and they were just completely forgotten about with the plan. So I feel like I'll just make that known that I think vegetated systems are more likely to be able to spread out uh, flooding even more evenly, I think, whereas the walls kind of just move the flooding to another spot. Okay, thanks. And I'm originally from Needham, so appreciate it. Oh, that. nice. <laughs> I like all the Massachusetts support. <laughs> okay, um, that was interesting. And along the same vein, Anna Stepanova asked, were 
Um, were you able to relay your findings to folks in coastal communities that completed your survey? And if so, are they willing to make changes on private plots to help protect them better? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, so I always like to try and make sure to inform the people that I'm surveying. I think just asking them questions and leaving is a little bit rude. So I did have continuing communications with the people who completed my survey who at least wanted to talk to me. Um, and so I would inform them about the research that I was finding and then the people I talked to, I did send them um, my, uh, I published the work from Key West. So I did send everyone from Key West who took the survey that work. The communications though that I'm having is they don't have the ability to make these changes that I'm talking about. They need support from the whole entire, like the whole island almost to be able to make the changes because Key West and the lower Florida Keys specifically are so uh, channelized. There are so many different channels and dredged for boating and access that you can't just put a mangrove in that area. You need support from uh, designers and planners and from the government itself to make those changes. Um, that's the Florida Key specifically, and, I, and I've been working with the um, sustainability coordinator for the city of Key West, and she's been talking about trying to make kind of statewide, not statewide, sorry, um, citywide plans to live with green space and to have better flow control structures and to put these different vegetated systems in place where they can be, but that's not at the parcel scale. I think there needs to be a lot more innovative solutions before parcel scale changes can be made. I also wanna comment that there needs to be money for it as well. Um, vegetated systems themselves are less expensive to have if, that is this if that's a possible solution. But vegetated systems can't be in just like right on the ocean, like the wave would just wreck the vegetation there. So these hybrid options the more crazy you get with them, the more expensive that they can be. And so there have been studies that show if people are funded, they're super likely to change to a vegetated or a hybrid solution. They just don't have the funding or the ability right now to change. So we need this kind of ability to help people make the change instead of just saying, hey, this is good for you. Why don't you do it? And they'll be like, sure, how? So there needs to be innovation and funding. <laughs> um, so you made a comment um, just a minute ago about how Massachusetts was going to build the wall, mm -hmm. um, but didn't consider these nearby communities. And so that um, brings up the idea of social justice related to to these structures and you know who gets to have them and and um, who who suffers and who benefits. Um, my background is in marine biology, and so I've always thought about the ecological impacts and never really considered the social justice impacts. So could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe how specifically how they um, might impact areas of, that you were studying? Yeah, so the uh, social justice issues are something that I was always interested in um, and something that I found really hard to unpack in these areas, often because when you go to areas like Panama City or Key West, honestly, the areas that are not funded as much or the poor communities are often hidden. 
Um, and I had a lot of conversations with people in communities that would talk about how they're kind of the last locals. I have this picture of this person who uh, has a flag of the Conch Republic is what it, like the locals call it in Key West. And so they talked about how they often felt forgotten about after storms. And that's just with damages. That's like the uh, main street in Key West, Duval Street was cleaned up right after the storm. And then Key West said, hey, we're open for tourism. Well, people still didn't have a house. And so they often felt forgotten about after this. But that's just hurricane damages. And I think that that's a little bit easier to see sometimes. But what we've also been finding with these studies of looking at shorelines the mangroves, the mangrove shorelines were typically with um, more expensive homes, larger areas. So that picture of the person um, with the marsh in front of them, they owned all of that land. So if you don't have the money to own that land, you don't have the room potentially to have these large marsh systems. And then same with, uh, so that was in Panama City, well, Bay County actually, but same with Key West, that people who were kind of tighter together and um, were in the poorer communities just had seawalls to protect them. And they weren't even seawalls like the seawalls you see when you drive around Key West. They were kind of lower. They were made of like wood instead. So it's the... The effectiveness of the shoreline typically ended up matching the kind of damage that people were seeing um, because of their more socially vulnerable position. So that's why I always come back to we need funding and we need the money for it because you can't just expect someone to make this big shoreline change when they have other things that they're supposed to be worrying about. Um, so thank you for bringing up the social justice issue, because not only are hurricanes more impactful to more socially vulnerable populations, uh, flooding is as well. Uh, there's been many studies that show the disproportionate amount of flooding in um, people of color and in uh, lower income communities. But the protections that are provided to them are also almost non-existent sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, Zach Brown uh, says, a related question I have is whether you've had any interactions with FEMA about how this research could inform policy. For example, I'm wondering how incentives to use these methods may be limited by the current structure of the National Flood Insurance Program. Oh, totally. And that's something, if you want to talk further, that I've been really interested at looking in depth at the National Flood Insurance Program, um, specifically with housing, Houses continuously are being built in areas that are risky um, and kind of built without thinking about the future. So I don't have an answer. I have not worked specifically with FEMA. The little bit of interaction I've had with FEMA is that um, I worked with someone who wanted to ask uh, questions about evacuation. And I asked the questions that they wanted and we just kind of like shook hands and moved past and like moved on from that. So I would love to have more interactions with FEMA, um, but I just have not yet. Zach says, cool, thanks. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and just a reminder, if you want me to read a question for you, put it in the chat. Otherwise, use the raise your hand function. Uh, while people are thinking, one more thing about FEMA is, uh, especially in Key West and the lower Florida Keys, a lot of people reported that they don't trust FEMA. So you'd have to build trust before working with FEMA to like make re regulatory changes that would help people build like a different shoreline type. You need the trust first. And so not having the trust in these areas because of the kind of missteps that have been taken in the past um, would need to be overcome first. So I, th I think it would be hard for this area, but I wonder where it could be impactful or helpful. Is the mistrust uh, stemming from personal experience of the residents or um, ex just watching how FEMA has reacted to other emergencies in the past, like Katrina? Both. Um, so I think a big thing that kept being brought up is uh, the, the issues people had with interacting with FEMA itself, that they would go through these like week-long processes of trying to get flood insurance or trying to get money from FEMA and then end up with nothing, even though they're like, oh, my neighbor got this, this, and this. Why didn't I get anything? The other thing is that um, because of the rules that FEMA's, FEMA has, there's, I don't know if it's just Florida, I would have to look more into this, but if a home is damaged more than 50%, you're not allowed to rebuild it. Um, and if you rebuild it, you have to rebuild it up to the flood insurance uh, code. So like elevating it enough, making it a category five proof home. So a lot of people didn't want to report damages because they would be nervous that it would cost more to rebuild than just to repair what they had. So that's also like people trying to navigate the waters is tough. Um, so yeah, both stories and what their own experiences were. That, that's an interest, that could be a really interesting economic study. Yeah. <laughs> of what, what's the break, what's the point where people decide to, to claim. Um, and I imagine that those types of policies result in the very variable types of structures that you see in an area. And again, I'm more familiar with like coastal South Carolina, where you can see some older homes that are like flat on the ground. And then obviously the newer ones have to be elevated and have hurricane shutters and yada, yada. Um, and, and so I wonder if those types of things, because, you know, the grounds that are, the houses that are still in the ground have been flooded, like, at, you know, at least once, if not multiple times. Um, and that, that can't be good for people. It can't be healthy for people who are living in them. Yeah, there's um, a place in the Keys. So the first key you reach when you um, drive over the seven mile bridge, um, Boca Chica, is there's like this, oh, big pine key. Sorry, I don't, I forgot which one for a second. So a big pine key, there's this area in the top right of the island where there's just rows of houses. And the closer you get to the Northern side, the like taller the houses get. So it's a really interesting gradient of lower income. And then pretty much as you get closer to the waterfront, it just the houses immediately skyrocket in price. So, and in elevation. So it is just this interesting dynamic between what people have and what people 
want to spend to protect them or what people can spend to protect themselves and then what they think FEMA will make them spend. Yeah. A couple of years ago, um, there is a house, I think it was in North Carolina that fell into the ocean. Uh, do you see a lot of that in Florida in your study areas? Are people just giving up and saying, let it be? Yeah, I, so I feel like I have seen in the Keys, weirdly, not as much of the just let it go into the ocean, but in the Bay, uh, because there's a lot more beach homes, mm -hmm. people are, uh, if the beach is kind of eroding away, then they kind of are like, oh no, we can't rebuild back there. And so just kind of let it go. So I think it might come down to the environment that you're around. And so the almost the hardened canals, even though they're flooding a lot, the homes are not just falling into the ocean in the Keys as much. Not that I know of, at least. I haven't been down there in a couple of years now. <laughs> that's, um, that's, yeah, that, that, that was wild to me, but, uh, you know, it, it makes sense. And I wonder at what point, um, people will realize that rebuilding is not, not worth it and to let, and, and to have more of a natural area that could protect the houses a little bit more inland. Yeah. Okay. Any any last minute questions before we wrap up for today? Um, I do see one more in the chat, and I know it will be a quick answer because oh. uh, there is the question of the vegetative system's ability to bounce back and what is the upper limit of that regenerative capacity. Um, and I do think that with increasing, like I think you're right, that increasing storm frequency and intensity, the ability to bounce back might not occur as much. There has been studies on bouncing back from inundation and loss of leaves. And so that is pretty well known, um, but with saltwater intrusion, that is far less well known. And so there were some places in the Keys that mangroves, they thought it was gonna grow back, but the roots were basically covered with sediment that people didn't realize until it was too late and the mangroves didn't regrow. So there's these weird kind of interactions happening that are not well known as their ability to bounce back because of the change in climate. So not only the storm intensity, but saltwater intrusion and the changing sediments and soils as well. So more studies. <laughs> that question was from Zach and he says, very informative, thank you. Yeah, this has been very um, interesting. Uh, so we have the Ag, Ag Biofuse program with the students and, and we don't often get to hear about the water in the Ag Biofuse, which is the food, energy and water systems. So um, this has been uh, a nice uh, addition to close the loop on the other aspects that we talked much more about. So um, if everyone could help me thank Kira for um, coming and sharing her experience and research with us. Um, thank you very much. And um, are there any last minute announcements that we need? Just a reminder that next week will be in person in PO 202. So read your um, newsletter to be reminded about that. Um, and again, thank you so much, Kira. Thank you everyone for joining us and we hope you have a good week. 
Thanks for letting me talk about my coastlines. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye.